I think one of the simplest ways is not looking at foods in terms of good and bad, because once people start looking at foods as good and bad, they start also thinking that when they have a bad thing, it makes them feel guilty or it creates a cycle and everything like that. Maybe you can look at it as like something could be more nutritious and less nutritious and all foods can fit or everything like Ooh, that. Oh, I gotta go. I've been working, told them please don't hit my phone. I'm in my zone, bruh, just leave me alone. Was on the road, but I swear I'm coming home. Now the drinks on me, I think we need a toast. See, I did it for me. Now my old friends calling, told them nothing's for free. Told me time is money, dog. Swear I paid on my fees. I was starving for this day. Now my family can eat. Hey, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Cup of Nurses show with your hosts, Peter and Matt. Two nurses on a mission to change this world, one conversation at a time. If you find value in the show and want to join us on this mission, please share and review the show. It would mean absolutely everything to us. Cupofnurses.com for your latest updates, merch releases, and anything else. Check that out, including that shop. If you want to check out our lifestyle podcast, check out wearefrontlinewarriors.com. In this episode, we would like to introduce you to Aiden Muir. Aiden is a dietitian with a role split evenly between seeing clients and creating content. He has a broad range of interests, but mainly sees clients in sports nutrition, particularly strength training athletes, weight loss, and gastrointestinal disorders. We talk about gut health, how to build muscle, and how to optimize your body while working night shift. Thank you, Aiden, for being here. Thank you so much for your time. Can you give us a little bit of background about yourself, how you became a nutritionist, what influenced you to become a sports nutri- nutritionist, get into weight loss and gut health? Yeah, cool. So um, my name is Adam Muir. I am a dietitian. The things that got me into that, I guess, is just personal interest. I um, I was always interested interested in sports when I was a kid. And I, I don't know what made me think this, but I, I thought going to the gym was going to solve all my problems. I was going to get jacked. I was going to get tanned. And I was going to like, I, I don't know what I thought was going to happen. But I, I was a very skinny kid to start off with. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go to the gym, going to gain size. That's going to be awesome. And within a first within the first few weeks of going to the gym i lost like five kilos i was already skinny to start off with i was like what just happened <laughs> i was like i don't know what just happened and i just got on google and started like looking into training looking into nutrition looking into everything like that and i quickly learned that i had created a calorie deficit because i tried to quote unquote clean up my diet while also increasing energy expenditure by going to the gym and it just clicked for me. I was like, oh, I need to learn more about this nutrition thing. Like I was always interested in nutrition, but that was the first time I'd like been exposed to calories and stuff like that. And I also think because getting progress in the gym didn't come easily to me, it made me far more motivated to learn more. And then that sent me down a rabbit hole trying to learn as much as I could, which then led to me going to university indirectly as well. Cause I was like, I'm spending all this time on this anyway I might as well do some formal study in the area too and that eventually led to me wanting to work with people and work one-on-one with people which led to the sports nutrition side of things because I was already interested in that and then I know gut health just came alongside that just because I was seeing a lot of clients in that space and I was like I enjoy doing this so made me want to learn more about that too. And Aidan being a nutritionist do you follow any kind of specific diet or do you eat like a well-balanced diet have you experimented with different types of diets? I have experimented with 
a lot of types of diets just to like, because I obviously get a variety of clients. I like to know what people go through and everything like that. So like I've done like, I've done most of the things you can think about. Like I've played around with keto, I've played around with fasting and all of those things, even if it's not necessarily something I'm interested in. I've played around with it just for experience. But in terms of like what I follow myself, I would say it's mostly a well-balanced style diet. One of the differences between, I don't know, say like what some people would consider a well-balanced diet and what I do is I would potentially have a significantly higher protein intake versus like there's a lot of other dietitians who would follow like a Mediterranean style diet or something kind of resembling our Australian dietary guidelines or something like that. The biggest difference between me and that is obviously from the lifting side of things, I prefer a higher protein approach. When I first started lifting, people always told me to be careful about your protein intake because your kidneys are going to take a shot. You might get kidney failure in the future. Is that like a debunked myth where your body can tolerate way more than 30 grams plus of protein at a sitting and you'll be just fine. Yeah, it's well debunked. Hey? So it's, um, it's based on the logic that the kidneys are clearing the byproducts of protein. And therefore, if it's clearing those things, it puts more strain on the kidneys. It's kind of the logic that's used there. Um, firstly, that's obviously a little bit flawed logic to start off with because lifting puts strain on your muscles. Does that cause issues? Like, no, like the muscles adapt and recover and get stronger and everything like that. Um, instead of just looking at what puts more strain on something, because once again, cardio puts strain on the heart. It, like there's all these things that like our body can adapt to. Um, instead of looking from that perspective, it makes sense to just look at outcomes. And there are countless studies that are looking at higher protein intake over a lifespan and just seeing what happens to kidneys. And particularly when you account for other variables, because somebody could have a higher protein intake and they could have other variables that go alongside that. Like they might have a higher calorie intake, which could be a factor. But when you account for all other variables and you measure things like glomerular filtration rate, which is a marker of kidney function and everything like that, you would assume based on that logic that higher protein intake leads to a quicker decline in glomerular filtration rate over a lifetime. But we don't see that. When we look at it, like say one gram per kilogram of body weight, 1.5 grams per kilogram of body weight and two grams per kilogram of body weight per day for protein, there's no like, there's no link between that and kidney function, which is reassuring. There hasn't been like super, super high protein intake. So there's no like three grams per kilogram of body weight per day for years on end. Like there's nothing super high, but we know that the amount that is required to optimize muscle and then slightly above that is still fine for kidneys, which is reassuring. When it comes to their uh, relationship with food, I know a lot of people struggle with that. They, they eat when they're sad or when they're angry, uh, when they're bored. How do you develop a proper relationship with your food? For example, what helped me develop a proper relationship with food is intermittent fasting because I realized that I have to kind of stop eating, eating in a, an emotion and I have to eat more to fuel my body because I only have an eight-hour window to eat. I have to realize, really maximize the quality of food that I eat and not... not not look at it as like you can say a friendly thing but a thing that I, I need to do and it has to be done in, in a proper way because if I don't get my proper nutrition in this eight hour window well then I'm not feeding my body properly and I'm going to be hungry so how do you develop a good relationship with the food where you don't eat it based on emotion and you eat it more based on fuel and what you're supposed to be doing yeah it's that's a massive question because it, like I could I could talk for hours about that um I think one of the simplest ways, and I don't know if this is a good answer, but I think one of the simplest ways is not looking at foods in terms of good and bad, because once people start looking at foods as good and bad, they start also thinking that when they have a bad thing, it makes them feel guilty or it creates a cycle and everything like that. Maybe you can look at it as like something could be more nutritious and less nutritious and all foods can fit or everything like that. But the, the emotion side of things is obviously tough. Um, 
I, I think a lot of people link it with this is the way my life has always been. I can't change this. Like I was kind of like, you, you hear people talk about, I, I finished the food on my plate no matter what, because that was how I was raised. And it's like, well, we can change these things as we grow, but they can be very, very difficult to change. And another thing that I, I find interesting because me personally, I don't eat based on emotions pretty much at all, which is, that's just something that's naturally innate. That's That's how it's always been. But I've heard other dietitians talk about some level of eating based on our emotions is okay. It only becomes an issue when it dictates a large percentage of our food choices. Like there are some people who, when they are sad, they do change what they eat. When they are happy, they do change what they eat. And that's almost like a cultural thing to a certain degree. Like some people, they get a raise at work and then they go out for dinner and that obviously influences in certain degrees. And it's like, sometimes it's a little bit of a cultural thing. Other times it's only an issue when it becomes like a large percentage but yeah, I don't have a good answer for like how to solve it in everybody because it's a, it's a super complex problem. So question, we're talking about emotions and I'm kind of curious to talk about beliefs here and map the mind-body connection. And I don't know if this is based on science, but do you believe that people's minds are so powerful as far as beliefs? If you think that you're eating this food and you're not going to be able to digest it properly, your body will manifest symptoms to showcase that you can digest this food properly. Do you think it's powerful to that extent? I think so. I don't think it fully explains it in all cases, but I 100% think that is a massive thing. Um, there's even, um, as an example for, because those would be like IBS type symptoms, there's an app I get a lot of people to use called Nerva, which does gut-directed hypnotherapy. And it has an 80% success rate, around an 80% success rate, and it's hypnotherapy. And like, I don't necessarily know if it's a hypnotherapy that's causing that success rate, I don't know if it's because they take 10 to 15 minutes to de-stress and that helps as well because we know stress has a massive link with digestive symptoms. Or I don't know if it's because I've told them that it has an 80% success rate, they expect to get results and then that plays a factor. That's not even a food intervention and it has like an 80% chance of significantly improving how they digest food and reducing the symptoms and everything like that. So I think there's a massive link with the brain and how it factors in but it is also a complex topic too. Can you briefly touch about that? Is that a hypnosis that you start before eating the food or are you de-stressing prior to you consuming anything? So it's basically 15 minutes just done at any time of day. Um, when I talk about the de-stressing thing, I think it's more in that like a lot of people just go through their day-to-day -day life stressed for the majority of the day. If they take 15 minutes to de-stress at any time, it likely does help. The timing of when they do the hypnosis is completely unrelated to when they eat. Like it doesn't have to be linked. It could be before, could be after, could be at any time. Even people um, who are super, super busy, I just get them still before bed if they have no other time in the day to get it done. I don't think it matters too much. So is this like a person speaking or is this like, you know, yeah, normal, normal bowel sounds playing and you get relaxed to bowel sounds? It's very similar to guided meditation. It's pretty much just guided meditation. So say it's 15 minutes. The first five minutes is just like normal guided meditation. The last five minutes is just like normal guided meditation. And then in the middle, they talk about some like gut directed stuff. Like they get you like visualizing your intestines and stuff like that. And like what's going on in there. Um, but most people from what I understand seem to be in almost like a trance-like state during that. So they don't really notice what's going on. Okay. When it comes to optimizing your body to its fullest potential nutrition-wise, is there a difference the way macros should be shaped when you're a male or a female, or is it about, about the same? I think it's about the same. So I can understand logic where other people would have a different opinion on that. Um, 
when you look at the menstrual cycle, there's certain phases where fat oxidation is increased and there's certain phases where carb oxidation is increased. And a lot of people then use that to um, form the opinion that we should change what we're doing at different points of the menstrual cycle, which would therefore dictate that women should eat a different ratio than men. Um, I, I don't necessarily think that to be the case. Once again, we should base a lot of our thinking on outcomes a little bit more so than mechanisms, because if that is the case, we should see better results when people do do that stuff. And we, we don't necessarily have evidence of that yet. That might come. I don't know. But then the other thing is like looking at oxidation rates, I don't necessarily think is overly, overly useful because from a different perspective, fasted cardio versus fed cardio, when people are training fasted, they're burning significantly more fat. When people are training fed, they're burning significantly more glucose because they have more glucose available. But if people eat the exact same in the day and they do the exact same amount of cardio and we measure their results over a long period of time, but one group does fasted and one group does fed, they end up with the exact same results because even though they're burning more in that particular session, it balances out over the day because they've burned more of what they had available at that time while they didn't have the other one as available as much because they had less carbs during that session. But it balances out. And that's why I'm like, I would rather look at the outcomes than the mechanism because of that kind of thinking. The same kind of thing with the different macronutrient splits. I, I don't think it matters too much between genders. Okay, what about fat loss? Do the principles of fat loss, are they any different based on gender? I know females tend to hold on to body fat a little bit more just because they have more estrogen and um, they naturally just have more fat because they're the ones that give birth. So their body naturally holds on to that. So is there... Regarding the principles or maybe thermodynamics or just, or just fat loss, is there any difference between that, between male and female? Yes. So it is still thermodynamics. Like I, I would, like I agree with the whole concept of like, that it's harder for them to lose fat for the reasons you just said. And another thing that's probably underappreciated as well is just size differences and muscle mass differences. The more size somebody has and also the more muscle somebody has, um, the larger their calorie budget is. And this becomes interesting when you think about it being like, okay, say the average calorie requirement to maintain weight for somebody is about 2,000 to 2,100. That therefore means men might be a little bit higher, maybe the 2,300, 2,400, and women might be around the 1,800 mark. What if a woman, what if a woman is a little bit small, a little bit shorter than the average woman and they aren't overly active? Are they now looking at slightly less to maintain their body weight? they suddenly have a much smaller calorie deficit that they can create without going to super, super low calories. Um, at the end of the day, it still comes down to the same percentages and they might be losing the same percentage of total body weight as a male would be, but the absolute amount is much smaller and that leads to potentially more frustration. And then the other thing is the whole, how the menstrual cycle comes into play during this. A lot of women have an increased appetite at certain points of the menstrual cycle, typically like, one to two weeks before their period starts and in some cases i might even increase calories a little bit one week before their period just to make it easy to manage cravings and stuff like that whereas for men we obviously don't have to worry about that situation interesting and then kind of shifting gears here for the nurses uh, majority of our nurses our night shift workers. Peter and I have been night shift workers for over six years. Yeah. What we try to do is after midnight, we try to stop eating food at all. And it's like a hybrid intermittent fasting approach, just so even though our sleep cycles all over the place, our body's already whack, at least our digestive system can be somewhat maintained since we're yeah. not eating at night. So do you believe that people that are working night shift are digesting food differently? Is there a difference in nutritional requirements that you might be experiencing if you're a night shift worker 
So I once upon a time, I went deep down that rabbit hole because I have a lot of night shift workers and there's a massive argument for what you kind of just pointed out there. What I am personally doing with clients is not necessarily along those lines, not because I think it's better, but just because of how I've had experience with clients, what I see has been working for me is I, I get people just to build on the 24 hour cycle. Say I had somebody on a meal plan or any kind of structured approach. All I'm doing at this stage is I'm saying, try and get this in over each 24 hour cycle and do whatever you think works best for you because everybody has different approaches that they seem to think works best for them and everything like that. Um, people will talk about how insulin is working better at different types of day, digestion is working better at different times of day and everything like that. And I do think those matter, but I also think any approach you take to manage that has a greater impact on your overall nutrition than the actual outcome of that specific approach. Using an example, like using your example, if, if you fast from that midnight onwards kind of thing, does that affect your total intake? It probably means you eat less food overall than you would have if you were eating out throughout the night as well. Um, and that's why I look at it just being like, if I just give somebody 24-hour cycles, give them all this food and see however it works out best for them, it seems to be leading to better results for me but it is so much personal preference and how people feel. A lot of people don't even really want to eat full proper meals at like 2am or something like that. They don't want to be focusing on protein and vegetables and everything like that. Often what I find is if people don't have any form of structure, they might be snacking more throughout the night or anything like that as well. And for someone that is prone to snacking and they want to kind of avoid that, uh, what recommendation would you give? Would you recommend maybe eating like a higher protein meal? That way you it keeps you full longer or what's like a way to battle those, those feelings or those cravings? Yeah. So for snacking, just in general, same thing, higher protein meal, um, higher volume meal. So like if somebody, I call it this concept of volume eating, which is a higher volume of lower calorie foods. So like lean protein sources, more vegetables, everything like that. And in some cases, a slightly higher calorie meal than what people might already be considering like there's a classic breakdown of some people might have like a really small breakfast and then their lunch is just like i know lean meat and salad and then they don't really have intentions of any snacks throughout the day and then they have a normal dinner or something like that that's their plan in their mind and it's like that's a very low calorie intake in comparison to whatever their maintenance calories would be and then they always want to be snacking but it's like well there's a big difference between what the plan is and what their maintenance calories would be it's kind of normal for the body to be really hungry in those situations. Sometimes adding more calories to meals makes people feel fuller and less likely to want to snack as well. When it comes to intermittent fasting, what is your personal opinion about it? Do you think it's beneficial? Do you think it's something that people should do when they're aiming to lose fat? Or what's like, when someone is, my, when someone is thinking about doing intermittent fasting, what kind of outcome are, are they looking for? Because a lot of times when people do intermittent fasting, they try to lose fat. And the, the thing is, is they eliminate, they end up eating less calories. So it's basically an elimination diet. So is there any benefits to intermittent fasting besides losing fat and losing weight? Do you find any other kind of benefits or, or positives about it? For, for the fat loss and weight loss, I say there's something that like almost everybody who does intermittent fast, fasting is going to lose weight because they are going to create that calorie deficit. It's very hard to eat too many calories when you first switch to that smaller eating window. Um, so I see it as a personal preference thing. Some people find it so much easier to do that than otherwise. Other people find it harder, obviously. With the, with the other benefits, one of the biggest difficulties with interpreting a research is that weight loss thing I just talked about. If you look at every single intermittent fasting study that's ever been done, almost every single one results in people losing weight and being in a calorie deficit. 
And when people then look at um, extrapolating other benefits, like what does this do for cholesterol? What does this do for blood glucose levels, blood pressure, all of these other things? They almost always show improvements because a calorie deficit would also lead to those outcomes. What I find is one of the most interesting areas is how does this play a role in longevity? That's one of the biggest um, things that people will promote with intermittent fasting. They'll talk about autophagy, which is basically um, renewing dead cells, getting rid of dead cells, and potentially that reduces cancer risk is one of the, the biggest proposed benefits that people will talk about. Um, the biggest difficulty for me interpreting that is calorie deficits in general lead to autophagy, right? The difference of intermittent fasting is we see it on this acute time frame, where it's like, say somebody fasts for, let's use a slightly longer fast, like a 24, 48, 72 kind of hour fast. If they do that, we see autophagy on this massive scale and we can clearly see it happening. If somebody had the exact same calories, but over the course of a month, do they get the same level of autophagy as somebody who does that fast, but then eats slightly more calories or whatever to match the total calories for the scenario for the rest of the month. Do they get the same amount of autophagy is, or is there a different amount? We can't really measure that. So we don't actually have an answer to that question. My current opinion is that they do get the same amount. The only difference is we see it on a more acute time frame, And that also extends to a lot of my other thinking about fasting. Um, and using that logic, I therefore think it's not necessarily superior to other forms for health outcomes or other forms of dieting or anything like that but it's a hard thing to measure and know for sure as well. What about intermittent fasting and muscle building? A lot of times I've noticed it feels better yeah. to work out fasted. And sometimes there was days where let's just say I'm a night shift worker. I'll go work out at 9 a.m. I'll go to sleep at 11 a.m. And I'll wake up yeah. at 5 p.m., have a meal. And I didn't get any protein in after my workout. Am I hindering yeah. my muscle growth because of that? So this is firstly, this is an interesting one because in terms of um, measuring muscle growth with intermittent fasting, almost no studies exist. And the reason why almost no studies exist is because almost every time somebody intermittent fasts, they create a calorie deficit and it's harder to build muscle on the calorie deficit. And there've been studies where people put together trying to create a calorie surplus and the participants still ended up in a calorie deficit. So we, don't, we can't measure outcomes with this. In terms of how we theoretically think about this, um, the research is super, super clear that total protein intake matters the most. And that's kind of in favor of intermittent fasting because you can get a high total protein intake still. Secondly, spreading it out across the day is typically a good thing. The current consensus of the research is that four to six protein rich meals spread across the day every like three to four hours or something like that is optimal. But it's if we had to look at it in percentages, it's like you can get 90% of the results by hitting total protein intake. And then that last 10% kind of comes from that spreading it out. And then in terms of like people talk about the anabolic window and everything like that, having protein before your workout just works just as well as having protein after your workout because it's still digesting and the amino acids are still being taken up by your muscles. So if you ate before the workout, you're still getting the same kind of outcome. The anabolic window is more of like a three to five hour window around your workout. So it could be before or after. So you can still reap those benefits. But if somebody say fasted prior to their workout and then didn't get protein in soon after their workout, they're probably missing that window of opportunity to a certain degree. Um, and part of why I say this concept of it being like that, like 90% of the results come from the total protein, maybe 10% come from spreading it out 
is because the research on intermittent fasting shows that when people are in a calorie deficit, they seem to retain muscle quite well if their total protein intake is, is high. If you, if you looked just at the research on spreading your protein intake throughout the day, you would make the assumption that intermittent fasting would be terrible for muscle retention. But when you look at the research on intermittent fasting with protein matched to people who are spreading it out, people seem to get very similar results which makes me curious of being like, what if somebody could create a calorie surplus or what if a large group of people create a calorie surplus and do this? I wonder what the results would look like. We don't have research on that yet, but I would make the assumption that it would be almost as good as somebody spreading it out throughout the day. Is that muscle retention based on on the way we, you could say, uh, metabolize certain uh, macros? Because I was always taught, and I was always on the impression that our body first breaks down carbs, fats, and then it goes to breaks down muscle is that is that I, true I, I would view it through the lens of we're breaking down all three at all times and it's the percentages we're often breaking down like during certain forms of exercise we're breaking down a larger percentage of carbohydrates than we are of fat and ideally we're breaking down minimal muscle but it depends on how long we go for and everything like that like when people talk about say like the fat burning zone where you're doing like cardio at a low intensity we might be burning more fat than more carbs during that and everything like that um but yeah, I'd view it through percentages. We're, we're burning all three at all times and the percentage changes. If you measure somebody's um, oxidation during a marathon, for example, at the start, they're burning more carbs while they have more carbs available. But as their carbohydrate depletes, they start burning more fat as a proportion and their muscle breakdown increases a little bit. But even from the start, like maybe like 10% or a little bit less of their energy stores is coming from muscle, even from the start. Okay. Can you touch base a little bit about um, muscular hypertrophy, how to, how to have that happen, and also maybe body recomposition, how that works, like on a maybe nutrition skill, and if you, could, if you know anything about it, like weightlifting-wise? Yeah, so keeping like the, the weightlifting-wise stuff, like super brief, like solid programming, ideally focusing on progressive overload, always trying to stimulate the muscle a little bit more than you did the last time and everything like that and building up the total volume over time. Like that's, that's probably the way to go about it. It's pretty simple from that perspective. From the nutrition side of things, the reason why a calorie surplus leads to a little bit more muscle growth than being at maintenance calories, which would be recomposition versus also being in a calorie deficit is because muscle is made up of calories. So is fat. Every kilo of body fat is made up of about 7,000 roughly calories. A kilo of muscle is made up of about 1,200 calories, but it's an energetically expensive process to create. It takes about five times that amount of calories to create one kilo of muscle. So when you look at it from that lens, if somebody's in a calorie deficit, they have fewer calories available than what it requires to maintain their body weight. If they're in that scenario where there is less calories available, the body is a little bit less predisposed to be storing that as muscle because it's trying to prioritize more urgent things or whatever. That doesn't mean it's impossible to gain muscle in a calorie deficit. We see it quite often. If you get a group of untrained people and make them train hard while in a calorie deficit, they're going to gain muscle in most cases. So it's possible, but it's less likely to happen. As people go into a calorie surplus, it's like you eat all this food that's required to maintain your body weight and then a little bit more and there's stuff left over. It has, to, it has to go somewhere. Energy can't just disappear. Calories are a unit of energy. And because there's stuff left over, it's more likely to be stored as muscle. But the tricky thing is um, muscle growth is a slow process. And if you have a large calorie surplus, it has to be stored somewhere. Body fat is quite easy to store. So it's like you, you would never really want a large calorie surplus. At most, you'd want a relatively small calorie surplus. And then with recomposition, 
it's just the concept of being at maintenance calories. Ideally, you have your protein intake relatively high. Ideally, you're training hard, all of these things. And it's going to lead to a little bit of muscle growth and a little bit of fat loss. Something that's really interesting to think about is if you look at bodybuilders who body composition is their thing, almost every single one of them will have time in a calorie surplus and time in a calorie deficit and minimal time spent at maintenance calories. And part of the reason for this is it's a little bit less efficient. Body recomposition Body recomposition is a little bit less efficient than prioritizing one or the other goals. You can definitely do it. And there's a lot of people I really recommend it for. But when somebody goes into a calorie deficit, we can lose body fat pretty quickly. And we can lose body fat relatively quickly while maintaining all or most of our muscle in the process. We can't gain muscle very quickly, but being in a calorie surplus speeds up the process a little bit. And that's part of why bodybuilders do this like bulking and cutting cycle, but rarely spend any time just trying to recomp. How can somebody easily figure out their, how much maintenance calories they need or their metabolic rate? And how do they gauge of a decent amount of surplus calories they should consume to, to build muscle? And does it matter if those calories come from fat, protein, or carb? Yeah, cool. So going through an order, how to, how to pick your maintenance calories. Um, there's plenty of calorie calculators online. I've, I've got one on my website, but I, I think people put too much faith into calorie calculators. A lot of people will say stuff like, for example, I'm eating in a calorie deficit, but I'm not losing weight. And I think that's stemming from a place of not fully understanding what these terms mean. Maintenance calories is the amount of calories required to maintain our weight. Calorie deficit is um, when you're eating too few calories to maintain your weight. What actually happens to your weight over time, not in the short term because weight fluctuates, but over time dictates whether you're in surplus, deficit, or maintenance, not necessarily what the actual numbers are. So how do you find your maintenance calories? Simple way, use a calorie calculator and then do that for a while. Follow those calories for three weeks or something like that. If you've maintained weight, those are your maintenance calories. If you have lost weight, you're in a deficit and you need to increase calories to find maintenance calories and vice versa if you're in a surplus. So the way to figure out what your maintenance calories are is just to do something for a while and see what happens and then adjust until you do find it. How do you find out what is a good surplus for you is basically you've really got to work back from your rate of muscle gain that you can achieve. Somebody who is male, has incredible genetics, has never stepped foot in a gym and is about to get onto an incredible training program, going to get good sleep, minimal stress, all of these things is more capable of gaining muscle than somebody who's quite far away from those circumstances I just laid out. They might gain 12 kilos of muscle in their first year or something like that. Somebody who's like real close to their potential might struggle to gain two kilos of muscle with a year of good training. Um, when you look at it through that lens, it's like, okay, that person can gain 12 kilos in a year. They can have a much larger calorie surplus because if they gain, say, one kilo per month, there's a chance that almost all of what they gain is muscle. If they gain one and a half kilos per month, maybe they gain a lot of muscle and a decent amount of fat in the process, but it was a pretty, it was a pretty good ratio. You get somebody who's only capable of gaining a small amount of muscle and you put them into that surplus. They just gain a bunch of body fat and only a little bit more muscle than they would have gained if they were in a small surplus. So that's kind of how you figure out how large should the surplus be. We know based on some mathematics that theoretically a 500 calorie surplus per day should lead to roughly half a kilo of weight gain per week. It doesn't work out exactly that way because the body compensates. It makes it so that when you add more calories, you burn more calories a little bit as well. But it's a rough rule of thumb, which therefore means that the size of calorie surpluses that you should be aiming for end up being quite small. And like we're looking at like a 200 calorie surplus or a 300 calorie surplus. And 
once we get down to those numbers, I stop really talking about it being the absolute number. I, I don't tell somebody, hey, you're in a 300 calorie surplus. What I start basing it on instead is the rate of monthly gain. If somebody is capable of gaining a decent amount of muscle, I'll just set it up so that they're on a certain amount of calories that means they gain around a kilo per month, for example. And if they go faster or slower than that rate, then we'll just adjust the calories to reach those targets. If somebody's capable of gaining less muscle or whatever, maybe half that amount and we go for six kilos across the year or whatever, or like half a kilo per month. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then does it matter if they eat protein for those excess calories? Oh, sorry, that's it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's an interesting question because a lot of research has like looked at that, but I, I don't know if I'll be able to verbalize it, but like what's the difference between eating say, 150 grams protein, 150 grams carbs, and 50 grams of fat as some random numbers at maintenance calories, and then going up to 200 grams of carbs in a surplus versus somebody who had 200 grams of carbs at their maintenance calories already and then changed the other stuff to get into a surplus. I think I verbalized that really poorly, but like I would think about it instead of being like, does it matter where they get these extra from to being like, what would just be the optimal to start off with? So phrasing that better, Instead of looking at through that lens, what I would do is I would find the optimal amount of protein. So it'd be like, say, 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight per day. And you just do the maths based on your own body weight. So you find the protein target first. You also find the calorie target. You just figure out how many calories you should be eating for this goal. And then you fill out the rest of your calories with carbs or fats. I believe that going on the lower end of fat, say 0.5 grams per kilogram of body weight per day, with this minimum target just being for hormonal reasons for both men and women, but say if it goes quite low for men, it might reduce their testosterone. So like having at least a minimum target for fat and then a little bit above that for personal preference or whatever, and then filling out the rest of carbohydrates. Um, I prefer to use total numbers rather than percentages or anything like that because percentages fall apart if somebody's more active or less active or they have a higher calorie budget or whatever. So once again, figure out the calories then figure out the protein because we know that with extreme confidence, have a minimum fat target. But if somebody prefers more fat, they could have more fat. But because calories are made up of protein, fats, and carbs, if you have a protein amount and a fat amount, you already know your carbohydrate amount based on that. I, lo I love nerding out on these topics. Before I wanted to become a nurse, I was actually big into dietitian, lifestyle, and diet, and all that. Yeah. And um, aside from the numbers, I just want to give some basic advice to anybody listening as maybe what they should be consuming. So... I know precision medicine or precision nutrition is very important, what you should be consuming. So as far as your regular day-to-day, -day, what should be on your plate? You mentioned protein all the time. Should it be complex carbs? Is it specific fats we should be consuming like nuts and seeds? What is like the basics you could give as far as tips for health and vitality of, a, of the human body? Yeah, for sure. That's a big question as well. And this is why... Um... This is why people have varying beliefs. Like when you when you listen to how I just broke down those numbers or whatever, you can get there in hundreds of ways. Somebody could follow a vegan diet and get to those numbers. Somebody can follow a far more animal-based diet and get to those exact same numbers. And if they have a variety of sources and everything within that, they'll pretty much get the same outcome. Um, for overall health, optimizing performance and everything like that, there are a few things that I think are important. One is getting a decent amount of plants in your diet, whether it's fruits, vegetables, whatever, that helps from the micronutrient perspective and everything like that. Make sure you've got a decent amount of fiber for gut diversity and everything like that, just your microbiome. Um, 
the protein sources, as I said, you can really get to the same place whether you're following a plant-based diet or a more animal-based diet. We can talk all we want about how animal-based diets have higher quality amino acids and everything like that. But if your total protein intake is high enough and you have a variety of sources on a plant-based diet, you just end up with this abundance of amino acids that kind of sort, it, sort itself out anyway. Like there's 20 different amino acids and often plant-based sources might be missing a couple of amino acids or they won't have enough of those. But when you have multiple sources, the gaps kind of get filled anyway, which is why both approaches can work well anyway. Um, in terms of like complex carbohydrates and stuff like that, I do think it makes sense to be focusing on these whole grain, higher fiber options and everything like that. More minimally processed options is typically a good thing. There can be exceptions to that. If you've got an athlete with really, really high calorie requirements and you try and get them having, I don't know, chicken, broccoli and brown rice or something like that, maybe they don't, they don't get enough calories in and their performance suffers as a result. So there can be exceptions where it's like, sometimes we just got to get the calories in. But in most cases, we want to be focusing on these minimally processed options terms of healthy fats like once again like i don't know things like avocado salmon nuts all of these things are more likely to be preferable versus um certain other more processed options or just animal fats and stuff like that like i would say that these more monounsaturated sometimes polyunsaturated fats would be a better option but this is once again just why so many people can follow different approaches and still get great results because there's many ways to go about doing this I love how you say that because it's not a one-step approach to everything. It's just very based yeah. on the body versus using reduction theory and saying they just slap it on. Hey, this is this works for everybody. And kind of going into gut health, that's a big trending topic. We there's you know different companies that does testing as far as like the stool and see what you need. This food is bad for you. What is the key to keeping a happy gut and um, have a um, great hormones from that. For example, serotonin is mostly made in the gut, I believe, right? So how do you go about gut health? So if I could give one simple recommendation, um, it's funny because I haven't given really any simple answers yet, but the simple answer for this one is greater than 30 different plant-based foods per week would be a really good starting point. Um, there was a thing called the American Gut Project where they basically just like measured people's gut microbiomes, measured the diversity of the bacteria in the gut, which is typically a good sign. And they also measured these populations that we would assume to be good populations of bacteria, such as like bifidobacteria and stuff like that. And when you use this very simple criteria of putting one group who has less than 10 plant-based foods per week and another group having greater than 30 different plant-based foods per week, there is a startling difference in what you would call gut health in terms of the things commonly associated with good gut health are far more commonly seen than the group having greater than 30 different plant-based foods per week. Um, so that sounds like a scary number. A lot of people hear that and they're like, oh, there's no way I could get to that. But like, if you get like one of those like salad bags, for example, that has like five different vegetables in there, you've already got five there. If you have mixed nuts or mixed seeds or whatever, you might get another five there. And that's like just two things we're talking about. Um, if you have a few different types of grains or something like that, even wheat is technically a plant-based food, oats, like all these things, like it adds up quite quickly when you do stuff like that. Um, so you could even like even easy switches to do that. Like say somebody might have almonds as an afternoon snack. They could get mixed nuts. Say somebody normally has red kidney beans. They could get, I don't know if this is a thing in America, but like a tin of like four bean mix, like where there's like multiple legumes and stuff like in there just to create like a little bit more diversity. But the one complexity that I would add to this is if we look at overall health outcomes, increasing fiber intake and increasing plant intake on average seems to have a pretty linear association with improved health outcomes. 
But in terms of um, when people talk about gut health, they often will lump in IBS type symptoms into there, like irritable bowel syndrome symptoms, whether it's diarrhea, constipation, gas, whatever. In some cases, people reducing their fiber intake or reducing their plant intake might help with that too. That's a really, really complex topic, but sometimes their triggers might be these higher fiber foods, in, if particularly if they increase it really quickly. Um, and maybe they might have some kind of sensitivities or anything like that to FODMAP foods, which is often fruits and vegetables will fall into this category. Not all fruits and vegetables, but certain ones, and sometimes reducing their intake helps manage those symptoms, which makes it complex because it's like if we're measuring gut bacteria, Increasing all of these things is really good. But sometimes if we're just measuring symptoms or whatever, sometimes reducing it can also help those symptoms. For somebody that's maybe struggling to get all those vegetables in, do you recommend like a certain supplement, like athletic greens? I'm not sure if they have that in Australia. Yeah, I'm aware of it, yeah. 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 Do you recommend any kind of um, maybe vitamins or any kind of supplements that might help with that? Because, for example, for me, when, I, when you're telling me 30 vegetables, I was like, God damn, even if I eat those mixed nuts, I'm still not going to hit 30. I'm like barely hitting 10 yeah. on, a, on a good day, you know? So is there anything that you'd recommend? Oh, that's you per recommend? week though. It's still per week. Like it's still like you've got, but anyway, yeah. Yeah, hey, pro, I'm, I'm a big person. I eat a lot of meat. For some reason, vegetables just aren't, yeah. aren't, my, aren't my thing, you know? So is, is there any supplements that you recommend for me to maybe try and, not I, know I, I know I can't hit those 30 with supplements, but some of that might like help a little bit. Yeah, so... Not from the gut health perspective, but from the micronutrient perspective, I, I would often start with a multivitamin over something like athletic greens, just because it's, it's something that's like specifically made just to cover any, any gaps or anything like that. Like I, a multivitamin would often be my starting point. Um, I don't see any downsides to stuff like athletic greens. Like I think it's fine. It's something that can be used as a, as a kind of cover all to a certain degree. It's obviously always better to get it through food, but that would be a starting point. Sometimes a probiotic supplement could be beneficial in some cases as well. There are prebiotic supplements, which is like fiber and vegetables are a type of prebiotic as well. So prebiotics are the food for the bacteria in the in the gut. I don't necessarily recommend prebiotic supplements very often, but it is also an option. Like the the order I'd go with is like try and get the vegetables first. If you can't do that, then look at either a multivitamin, athletic grains, something like that. And then sometimes I consider a probiotic alongside that. But there's other ways like eating fermented foods and stuff like that, like kimchi, sauerkraut, um, even kombucha and a few other options like that could also tick the box for or yogurt as well could also tick the box from that probiotic perspective too. Okay. And then when it comes to boosting athletic performance, there's a lot of research about creatine. Um, mm -hmm. I read a lot of studies and it says that's one of the best things you could take to have an increase in athletic performance. So do you know, do you know anything about creatine? Should you be taking it every day? Yeah. Is it safe to take every day? Uh, what do you know about that subject? Yeah, yeah, creatine's massive. Hey, I, I do a Saturday Q and A every week on Instagram, and every week there's like questions about creatine. Um, but creatine is the most frequent supplement that I recommend. Um, looking at it from a strength perspective, because strength is one of the biggest things that increases. There was a meta-analysis and systematic review done on one rep max performance, being like how much can you bench press for one rep or whatever. And over the course of twelve weeks, on average versus placebo people increase their bench press by 8% more in the creatine group, which is crazy. Like when you actually think about that, an 8% improvement from just taking a supplement that's legal is insane. Um, some people that sound small, but it's like, I don't know, there's not many supplements that work that well. So like an 8% is pretty huge. I don't, I don't really expect everybody to get like an 8% improvement because in these studies, often they have untrained lifters who get more benefit from stuff like this. But I look at it being like a, most athletes would get like a one to 3% improvement from creatine. Um, should you take it daily? 
yes, it's something that builds up in your system over time. If you take, say, five grams per day, it probably takes about 30 days to get this to the optimal levels in your blood. Some people would like to do a loading phase where you have like 20 grams per day for five days. That gets you to optimal levels. And then you drop back to like three to five grams per day to maintain those levels. And basically what it does is it increases our ability to regenerate ATP, which is this first form of energy for, say, anaerobic metabolism. So that first like 10 seconds of activity, it really helps with that. And if you're doing like repeated efforts, repeated sets, like whether you're lifting weights or whether you're doing sprints or whether you're doing whatever, it helps in those repeated efforts. And once again, I care more about outcomes than mechanisms, but theoretically, because people can get more work done without any additional fatigue, that creates a better training stimulus, which leads to better outcomes. Um, but once again, I care about care about outcomes and like people gain more muscle when they take creatine, they gain more strength when they take creatine and this should lead to better outcomes overall as athletes. And do you recommend that just for people that are trying to build muscle or is it also beneficial in cardiovascular exercises? I know you mentioned sprints, but someone someone told me that if you're not weightlifting, you shouldn't take creatine because it's going to dehydrate you and it's just going to um, have you perform yeah. worse. But then I was always under the same information as you were as that it increases ATP. So technically it should help you in, in, in both ends if you're doing, let's just say jujitsu or Muay Thai, as well as if you're weightlifting, right? Yeah. Am, am I, I wrong I would to still say take that? it for jujitsu and Muay Thai. Like I'd take it for the indirect benefits of helping your other training as well as potentially helping that. Um, with the water thing, it, it's an interesting thing. So a lot of people, if they do the loading phase, they might gain one to two kilos of extra water weight, right? And a lot of people like presume that that will cause issues. Something that I thought for a very long time was you'd get like that one to two kilo increase or whatever, and then it would stay stable. So it'd be like when you're on creatine, you're one or two kilos heavier with more water weight than if you never took creatine at all. When you actually look at the research, people's weight returns to the baseline. After being on creatine for over a month or whatever, all of the research has shown that people weigh what they would have weighed if they never took creatine at all. So it seems like it's like the body kind of, when you first add it, increase in water weight, but eventually it just returns to the baseline. And the dehydration theory falls apart a lot when you look at it as well, being like, firstly, we, we don't have any evidence showing that it increases the rates of dehydration. But when you actually break down the numbers, say you increase body weight by one kilo and say you don't do the loading phase. Actually, let's say you did the loading phase to make it more extreme. Do the loading phase, one kilo heavier, right? Because two kilos is a pretty big outlier. One kilo heavier. To achieve that status, you would need to drink 200 mil more water per day to compensate. Like it doesn't really drastically increase the likelihood of dehydration. Um, and then once we factor in that things balance out over a longer period of time, you'd only need to worry about that for the loading phase. So I wouldn't be too concerned about that. Um, and we've also got research on other situations, like when people get an injury and then they do a rehab process, their rehab goes better when they're taking creatine versus if they're not. If I was like a marathon runner, would I take creatine? Probably not. But if I was in combat sports or something like that, I would do that. Particularly this, I know I'm off on another tangent, but like um, there's a bit of research indicating that might also help with concussions as well in terms of reducing the risk and also improving the recovery from concussions. So if I was also in a sport where I was, there was a chance of a concussion, I'd probably take it as well. Yeah, and that makes sense because if you're, as this, for example, say you're, you're dehydrated and you're doing combat sports and you get hit on the head, you don't have as much fluid, which means your brain isn't as hydrated. You're more likely likely to get hurt. So it's almost like better to be overhydrated than underhydrated. I, I also believe it's related to the ATP in the brain as well. Yeah, that makes sense as well. Another thing that I hear as a counter argument against creatine is that once you stop taking creatine, you lose all those gains. So is, is that true? So let's say I gain my bench goes up by three percent on creatine. Yeah. 
is it going to then once I stop doing creatine, is it going to go down to my baseline or are those, those gains still going going to be there? Because technically, my muscles should have gotten bigger, not just the yeah. fluid absorption, not just not just the ATP. So is that is that also a myth? Yeah. So that that's why I use the wording specifically. If somebody takes creatine for twelve weeks, they gain more muscle than if they didn't take it at all. That muscle gain would stay. And one rep max performance. That's also why I use that as a metric as well because creatine. The, the, that whole ATP argument doesn't really matter for a one rep max because a one rep max is too quick to actually have this kind of matter. Um, your, what you would lose is the benefit of that ATP regeneration. It takes about 30 days for creatine stores to go back to the baseline once you stop supplementing. And say somebody's doing sets of five or five to eight or something like that, and they get a boost from creatine in performance for those things due to that ATP regeneration. When somebody stops taking it, that benefit of ATP regeneration stops, so they no longer get that benefit. But any muscle that you built while taking creatine is likely to remain after it. Obviously, that creates a, a different kind of discussion very long-term, being like, if you built that muscle due to having this benefit and then you stop taking it, and then you're no longer getting that same training stimulus, does it eventually disappear or whatever? Like, maybe, I don't know. But like in the first few months, particularly after stopping creatine supplementation, that you, you don't lose that muscle that you built while having it. As we slowly start wrapping up the show, I just want to ask one more question, a broad nutritional question. What are some non-negotiables of foods that you should be eating? So things that come to mind for me right now is maybe the amount of sugar you should be eating. If there's like a baseline, like, hey, 30 grams cut off, it's going to give dentri- uh, reverse uh, effects to you know nutrition, athletic performance. And also I'm thinking about industrial seed oils i know like canola oil and all those things are really bad where it causes oxidative stress from omega threes or sixes if um don't quote me on that one you should know more <laughs> yeah the seed oils on i i probably don't want to get too deep into that because it's, it's it's just a massive topic um with the seed oil stuff like the reason why i don't care about it because it's just like Firstly, I have this approach of being like, you should mostly be focused on minimally processed foods. Anyway, the seed oil thing is like, if you eat a lot of packaged foods and stuff like that, you probably end up with a really high intake of seed oils. So it's like, I don't know, firstly, I I think you should be limiting that, but not necessarily because I'm like, hey, seed oils are causing these issues, but more because I'm like, well, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there that is also leading to that. Um, I encourage extra virgin olive oil, which some people would classify as as a vegetable oil in some cases, but it's like, well, we have this abundance of research on the extra virgin olive oil is typically linked with good health outcomes, even from a mental health standpoint as well. Um, and oh, I feel like there's something else I was going to go with that. Oh, another thing with the, the, there's this whole like omega-3 to omega-6 ratio kind of debate that a lot of people have. Um, I can't remember what his name is, but the guy who like was like originally doing most of the research on omega-3 he's made the point that it's like it's not so much about the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio being like we really need to be reducing omega-6s it's more about we just need to be increasing omega-3s which seems to be leading to a lot of these health benefits um but that's that's a long topic in itself so i don't want to get too deep into that because there's a lot of people who know more about that than me with the with the sugar thing the sugar thing is a bit of a difficult one because i think for most people limiting added sugar is a really 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 good idea um the biggest health outcome that is linked with that you kind of touched on is like dental health. Very clearly, it affects dental health. When you account for all these other variables, like if you account for calorie intake, protein intake, fiber intake, micronutrient intake, and everything like that, and you get a couple of groups having higher sugar intake and a couple of groups having lower sugar intake, it's no longer linked with many health outcomes. That's a very complex topic by itself. But 
in practice, when people have a higher sugar intake, they often have a higher calorie intake. They often have a lower micronutrient intake and all of these kind of things, which is part of why I'm like, most people should limit added sugar. I don't want to put a number on it. I believe like the um, World Health Organization, I think they've got a number that's either like less than 30 or it's less than 50 or it's less than something like that coming from added sugar specifically. They use that wording because one of the things I touched on was calories, fiber, and micronutrients. There's no difference between sugar in fruit versus regular sugar. Like it still has the same outcome on the body, but if you're getting it through fruit, you're getting more fiber, you're getting more micronutrients, and you're probably limiting your calorie intake because it's very hard to eat a lot of fruit to the point that it leads to a massive calorie intake. In terms of non-negotiables, so I once again think this is very individual. For me personally, protein intake relatively high. I have a minimum target in my mind. I don't actually track it right now, but manually in my head, I kind of figure it out. I'm like, have I had that minimum target? Easy. Fiber intake as well. Once again, I don't actively track it or anything like that, but I'm like, well, making sure that I get a few fiber-rich foods every day is a good target. A vegetable target, once again, I'm not going to go the entire day without eating vegetables. I'm going to make sure I get vegetables and stuff like that in there as well. And then also in terms of calories, have tracked previously, but I, I view it also from an appetite perspective. I'm not going to eat well beyond the level of fullness and stuff like that as well. Those are the minimums that I look at, but it's obviously pretty individual for people, which is once again, why I say so many people can do different approaches and still get great results. Yeah. And one last question. Do you have any more questions, Pete? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm okay. Yeah, we should do like a round two, man. I love, I love this nutritional stuff, but one last question we'd like to ask all of our guests. So, if you had the opportunity to have a cup of coffee with anybody one last time, who would it be and why? Oh, God damn. That's a, that's a hard one. Um, I don't know. I don't know why he's coming to my head first. I'm, I'm reading a book on him, but um, Warren Buffett. You guys know Warren Buffett? Yeah. He's somebody I idolize in many ways, partly because at one point he was the richest man in the world. And he's so humble. Like he's so, so, so humble in many, many different ways. And even from an ethical perspective, um, I think he's really shown that you can succeed financially while trying to be a nice person and trying to be really ethical. That doesn't mean he's always succeeded in all of those things because there's been things that he's done that might not necessarily always align with that, but he's also like 90 something years old. and I think he's done a good job on average with those things. Yeah, good person. I. I uh, I have one quote. I'm pretty sure he's the one that said it, and it it'll to bring up the ethics portion. He always said, or he once said that to never let a good crisis go to waste. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, yeah, it's one quote, one quote. One quote that I always remember for him when he said that. I was like, from a financial pers- perspective, that's such a great quote. Quote, but from an ethical thing, it kind of is borderline on the whole ethics situation. But a great guy. I read a, I read a handful of his books as well. I, I, I would view that from a different perspective though because he's got to, like from an investing perspective, he's got a quote that aligns with that is be, um, be fearful when other people are greedy and be greedy when other people are fearful. So when there is a financial crisis, everybody is fearful and nobody wants to go into the markets or whatever. And that's his time to shine. That's his shine, time to like, invest all his money and everything like that i wouldn't necessarily suggest that like that like i don't know it's, it's a hard thing to do he, he's made all a lot of his money by investing in stocks and businesses and stuff like that that are growing something that's really interesting is that a lot of other people make money from short selling which is when they're betting that a company is going to fail decline in value or whatever 
And I think it's a very positive mindset to be focusing on that growth perspective because somebody who profits from the other end of the spectrum where companies are going down, it's kind of like you succeed when the world around you is failing and people are losing their jobs and stuff like that. So I, that's, that's that's my perspective. Yeah, 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 100%. I agree. He's, all, he's one of the people that got me investing first. I think I read, mm. it was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Well, mm. I read that book. That's how I started. Yeah, that's how I started investing. And then I came into Warren Buffett. Because I don't know if you mentioned him in the book or something. He was my, my second person that, that I listened to. And I was like, damn, this guy really knows what he's talking about. That's why I was yeah. really big into um, fundamental investing. He's the one yeah. that really introduced me to fundamental investing. He's look, he's, he always looks at the numbers, looks at how the company's doing, the expectations. Because, you know, typical investors don't really look at that. They just kind of go based off emotion and they kind of do a little bit of guesswork. But if you really read the, the quarterly reports, yearly reports, you really know where a company stands fundamentally and you can really figure out their value. Now I do yeah. more technical, technical analysis because I just find that more enjoyable when I, yeah. when I do my trading. But Fundamental investing was the first thing that, that got me into investing and I credit him with, uh, with, with my success yeah. or so-called success. Yeah, super, super interesting. interesting. Hi. Yeah. Aiden, where can people find you? Uh, two places. So as you mentioned, I've got a podcast. So I think you mentioned it. I don't know if you mentioned it before the podcast, but I have a podcast. So that is the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. Um, I try to do kind of short form content like 10 to 20 minutes for most episodes, trying to keep it pretty succinct. And then I also have Instagram, which is Aiden underscore the underscore dietitian. Thank you, Aiden. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being here. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me.